0: What a great Sunday uh, of worship and of celebrating uh, new life in the life of people. And I'm just going to take a moment right now to take this in. This is my last Sunday preaching to you as lead pastor and uh, I love you. I'm just thankful for you and for the opportunity you've given me for 13 years to be your pastor. You mean the world to me. You have been a blessing to my life uh, and I've been encouraged by you, loved by you and, and I just wanna say thank you. Uh, words are just not enough to express my gratitude and my love for you and the opportunity you give me every Sunday, you've given me every Sunday for 13 years to stand here and open God's word with you and. And hear from him together and grow together as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Uh, several weeks ago, when I began to share with my grow group uh, what was going on with this new opportunity, they asked me, "Well, tell us what are you? What is it that you're going to be doing? If you're not going to be a pastor of a church, what is it that you're going to be doing?" I said, "Well." As executive director of, of Texas Baptist, I, I'm going to get to work with 5,300 churches and 20 institutions, 10 of those institutions are Baptist universities in Texas. And I'm gonna to get to work with pastors and with university presidents and with people to together figure out how we can do the Great Commission, how we can live out the Great Commandment in our state, how, how we can be about kingdom business. And they said, oh, okay, so you're going to be the Baptist Pope. And I'm like, no, no. And they've been calling me that since then. That's bullying, I think. Um, They know there's no such thing as a Baptist Pope. um, But that's the way of teasing me. Uh, In fact, uh, today we call it Reformation Sunday. Because... On All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Those theses were a protest against abuses of the church, including abuses by the Pope that had taken authority uh, that had not been given to him by Christ or by the Scriptures and so in those theses, uh, Luther calls uh, for reform. He calls for a return to the scriptures, a return uh, to Christ, a return to the doctrines of grace and grace alone. Baptists are part of, of the Protestant Reformation. So so we're sharing that celebration. We're sharing those doctrines. So today is Reformation Sunday. This Tuesday, October 31st, we'll be celebrating and saying thank God for for that, uh, for that day. But in fact, our heritage as Baptists goes a little further. We are not just part of a Protestant Reformation. We're part of the radical Reformation. The magisterial Reformation of Luther and Calvin and Knox and Swingley uh, was important because they they made some, some good uh, strides in the doctrine of salvation. Uh, But they remain connected to to the state, they remain connected to the crown or, or, or to the magistrate, if you would. Uh, and, and so uh, that's as far as they went. The Radical Reformation, Anabaptists and Mennonites and, and Baptists like us, um, really went further and took the implications of the doctrine of salvation, the priesthood of the believer to the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology and so while the mainline church in those days would, would refer to the church as one global or national body, you would hear the Roman church or the Eastern church or the German church or the Anglican church or the Dutch church, the Baptists began to say, well, we rather refer to church S in the plural. That, that when we talk to, about churches, we refer to ourselves not as a global church, but as Churches. So, as we conclude our series uh, that we've called We Believe, today's our last sermon on this series where we're talking about doctrines that are important to Christians and especially to us as Baptists. I've entitled the message, To Whom Do We Answer? And uh, our text is found in Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 10, as John is describing this vision that is going to lead into the entire book of Revelation. I fell at his feet and though as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The book of Revelation begins with a vision of the triumphant Christ and instructions to write to the seven churches. Notice that the use of the plural by Christ, he's not saying write to the church, he's saying write to the churches. Now, uh, when we think of this idea of local, geographical, visible churches, uh, we know that the, the concept of a universal church is also scriptural. The Bible does talk about the, the, the body of Christ as a spiritual uh, body that is made up of every believer in Christ in every corner of the world in every age uh, since, since Christ resurrected. And, and, and we're part of that, but that, that's an invisible church. That's that's the church that we cannot see. Some of those people have already passed away, uh, have already gone to be with the Lord. All Saints Day, uh, and in some distorted sense, Día de los Muertos, is it's kind of a the realization that people have gone on to be with the Lord, but we remain connected to them because of Christ. That's a spiritual invisible church. But in the New Testament, when when they write instructions to a church, when, they, when the Holy Spirit leads to correct or, or to reprimand or to command the church, it is written to a local church, a, a church in Corinth or a church in Ephesus or a church in Philadelphia or a church in Thyatira. Uh, they're geographically visible churches. So let's talk about that for a minute. And the first thing I wanna to say to you is the local churches answer directly to Christ as Lord. I remember my first job uh, as a teenager. It, it wasn't my first job, but it was one of my first jobs as a teenager. Uh, I was in high school and, I, and I, I got a job at HEB. I was uh, the dishwasher for the bakery. And, uh, and then after some time, I had a good relationship with the bakery manager. She moved me up to the, to the counter. She trusted me with serving donuts uh, to people. And, uh, and then after a while, she um, talked to the store manager and they uh, put me in charge of a, a, an entire bread aisle where I made sure that the bread and the buns and the tortillas were stocked up. I ordered and I stocked them up and I, I took pride in my work. I did the best I could. Back in those days, I'm going to age myself right now, but back in those days, if you work for HEB, the uniform consisted of slacks, a dress shirt, and a necktie. That's how old I am. Um, and, uh, and I wore that uniform because it was required and, and that's how I went to work and that's how I stocked bread. But um, I had this cap of, I'm not gonna say the name of a band, it was a band. Uh, this white cap that I liked and I, I would wear it with my uniform and I had a good relationship with my bakery manager, she didn't say anything. I had a good relationship with the store manager, he didn't say anything, but, but one day, the district manager, who I've never met, never met me, came and, uh, and, and he came to my bread aisle and I was so proud of my bread aisle, but he looked at my hat and he was furious. I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a band so angry because I was wearing a hat that was not part of my uniform and because he had the name of a band that I'm not so proud to say what band it was. And so he reprimanded me, and I, and I realized at that moment that, you know, uh, in, in places where there are levels of authority, you may have a good relationship with the people that are closer to you, but, but the people that are further up the hierarchy, further up the, the chain, sometimes uh, you may get in trouble with them. When it comes to levels of authority in the church, the Bible tells us that there's just one level for the local church, that the local church answers directly to Christ. Did you notice in our passage that it is Christ who holds the seven stars and who stands in the midst of the seven lampstands. No one else shares his authority with him. There are not people or intermediaries that he's delegated authority over the local church. He and only he is Lord of the individual church. So when Christ gives a directive to John to, to write to the seven churches, he doesn't say right to the regional office. He doesn't say right to the headquarters. He doesn't say right to the diocese or the association or the convention. He says right to the churches and he names them one by one. Because Christ is our Lord, we answer to him directly. Because we answer to him directly, we are free from the control the authority and the oversight of any ecclesiastical body or any governmental body. That's a privilege. That's a freedom. That's something that those of us of the radical Reformation tradition hold dear. And we talk about something uh, called the autonomy of the local church. Now, the word autonomy literally means self-rule or self-government. And it is used to to emphasize that we are not under the authority of a hierarchical church. We're not under the authority of an institutional church, that we're under the authority of Christ. And the Christ that John describes in Revelation one is not the Christ on the cross, although we are thankful that he died on the cross. It is not the Christ that wears the crown of thorns, it is not the Christ is buried in a tomb, and it it's not the Christ is rejected and spit upon and misunderstood. The Christ that John describes is a triumphal Christ. It's a Christ who, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose voice is like the, like the sound of rushing waters. And out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. His face is like the sun in all of its brilliance. That's who we've been singing about today. That's who we've been worshiping today is the exalted, triumphant, risen Christ. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though that he passed out when he saw him. It was that incredible, that enormous when he saw him. And and that means that it is he who has authority over his churches. And it also means that we are securing him. Here, here's the thing that I love about this because not only is there not a hierarchy from here all the way to Jesus, but we relate directly to Jesus and when we're afraid, look at what he says to, uh, to John. He said, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. <laughs> I'm the first and the last. The church is secure in a Christ who loves us, who says, do not fear. I've already conquered death and sin for you. You are secure in me. I stand in the midst of you. I stand in the midst of the golden lampstands. And ultimately, we are reminded by the scriptures that we really don't stand on our own. So autonomy, it's a little bit of a misnomer because we're not really self-governed. We may not be under the authority of government or ecclesiastical institutions, but we are on the authority of Jesus. We stand with him, secure and obedient to him. So, Calvary, worship him. Stand in reverence before him. Listen to him. Make sure that this church is always about him. Exalt him, submit to him, obey him, Love him. Christ should be the center of this church always as he is today. And please remember that you're not here because of a pastor. You're here because of the risen Christ. And God has called me away. But until God calls you away, you stay here because Christ wants you here. Secondly, local churches associate together for his kingdom. There are many memories that I'm going to hold dear about being pastor of this church. Uh, too many for me to tell, but one of them was this five-year agreement that we had with the Convention of Philippine Baptist Churches in Central Philippines. For five years, we, we traveled there and we taught with uh, pastors and leaders of the churches there. We, we taught about disciple-making, about... How to plant churches how to multiply churches and the people there were so receptive they were uh, they were hospitable we we worshiped together we we learned together they they were enthusiastic they were ready to apply in fact we still get reports that they're applying what they learned from those times that we went to teach and we had some good food and good fellowship those were good good memories and someone may ask well if we are, are not part of some, if, if we're supposed to be autonomous, in other words, if churches relate directly to Christ, why do we have conferences like those? If the New Testament doesn't prescribe a hierarchical structure for the global church, why do we travel and do these kinds of things? Well, I'd like to remind you that local church autonomy doesn't mean independence, Answering directly to Christ doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ. When we look at this vision of John, we see that there are seven lampstands that represent the seven churches. Now, you might know that the number seven in the Bible, it's symbolic of completeness, when we see seven churches here, it is it is the completeness of the body of Christ. They're local, visible, geographically identifiable churches, but together they are complete. That each church answers directly to Christ does not mean that each local church is complete without the other churches. Churches are a temporary expression of God's will and God's purpose between the resurrection and Christ's return. What is really permanent is not the church, but it's the kingdom of God. And so, as churches, we exist for the sake of the kingdom of God. And as long as we exist for the sake of the kingdom of God, we work together with other churches for that reason. Jesus prayed for that. He prayed that his disciples and the disciples that will believe even after he ascended, would be one for the sake of the kingdom. Look at John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying before he dies, and he says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's referring to his disciples. He says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays for the unity of all his disciples. But notice that the unity that he's praying for is not an organizational unity. It is not an institutional unity. It's a spiritual unity. He says, as you and I are one, Jesus says to the Father, as you and I are one, and as I am one with my disciples, let them be one with one another. It is a spiritual unity. Uh, A few weeks ago, Ronald Sanchez and Jose Luis Jimenez from our church went to visit our workers in Spain and in India, people who are working among Muslim peoples, and Uh, In that uh, visit, Ronald uh, got to meet one of the people that we have been supporting for a long time, and he recorded an interview with him. Uh, You can tell that it's on site because you can hear turkeys and other uh, exotic things in the background, but he's recording in India this interview, which is uh, the contact of our missions podcast this week. I encourage you to listen to it. Uh, the person he's interviewing for the sake of security in the interview goes by the name of Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is someone that Calvary has worked with uh, for a long time. He's a Muslim background believer. He came to Christ after being a Muslim and, um, and he uh, was used by God to, to begin a, a church planting movement in Nigeria, he's from Nigeria. And, and so he did great work there, and we were so blessed to be able to partner with him financially, to encourage him, to sometimes visit him. But uh, after some years of, of uh, fruitfulness, he felt God's call to, to move to India and work around, uh Muslim peoples there. And, and so he knew that he had to have a budget for his first year there to be able to get his visa, to be able to get uh, support from his organization. And he figured out that his budget was $24,000 for the next year. He worked really hard at fundraising in Nigeria, his own country, and he came up with a whole $1,000. So he was $23,000 short. Couldn't get a visa, couldn't get supported to go. And he was praying. He knew God was calling him. and He didn't know what he was going to do. It was at that time that one of our pastors, our mission pastor, called him and, and told him, we know what's going on. We have seen God at work, and and we know that you need to get to to India and that you need to do this. And our missions committee has approved that we would send you $11,000. And you can hear in the podcast, you can hear Theophilus choking of emotion as he remembered that moment when he got that phone call because he says it was the wind behind my sails of faith. I knew God had called me. And this was the confirmation of that. And almost 10 years later, God is bringing people to salvation. God is training leaders. God is planting churches through Theophilus. And you know what's exciting about that? We get to be a part of that. Because we give, because we pray, because we encourage him. And, and that's such a great thing for us. to do. No one forced us to do it. No one mandated that we do it. God's Spirit called Theophilus to go, and God's Spirit talked to our staff and our missions committee to support. That's how God works. That's the spiritual unity that Jesus prays about. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, encouraged them to participate in a relief effort for the church in Jerusalem. Rather than mandating them to do so, he appeals to them using Macedonian as an example to follow. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing his service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, And then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for the sake, he be- for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul invites the church in Corinth to join the churches in Macedonia voluntarily to cooperate for the sake of the kingdom. The reason I've accepted this job as executive director of the Baptist General Convention of Texas is exactly that, because I want to be Encouraging churches in our state to voluntarily cooperate for the sake of the kingdom, for the Great Commission. Our state is growing fast. Our state is becoming more diverse every day. And our state is becoming less church every day. When you think about the proportion of the population in Texas that knows Jesus, that goes to church, that proportion is getting smaller every day. And we need churches to work together, to bring the gospel to every person in Texas, whether they are born here, whether they come from California, whether they come from Venezuela, whether they come from the Midwest, whatever the case is, they need Jesus. And not one single church can win the whole state to Christ. We need to work together. We need to pray together. We need to cooperate together in a voluntary fashion, not only to win Texas for Christ, but from Texas to win the world for Christ. In The future as you consider Calvary's budget, you'll always know that there are always a lot of needs locally. There are always a lot of needs in the church. And there's always a temptation in somebody's mind to cut the portion that we give to the cooperative program to cut the portion that we give to missions. And I just want to say to you, don't give in to that temptation. The need of the world, the lostness of the world hasn't gotten any smaller. In fact, it's getting bigger and Calvary needs to be about that. Third, local churches are accountable for their doctrine and ministry. We at Calvary have been saying for several years that our purpose is to make disciple-makers for the glory of God among the nations. A couple of years ago, we said the way that we're going to do that, the way that we're going to make disciple-makers for the glory of God among the nations is by gathering for worship, encountering the presence of God, and then growing in grow groups, uh, in community as disciples, and then going. Not just sending missionaries and sending our, our money and our prayers, but... Living out the gospel in our own oikos, in our own sphere of influence. And, uh, and so this May, we did a, a church survey, and we asked you, how are we doing? How are we doing with the gathering? How are we doing with the growing? How are we doing with the going? And you answered, many of you participated, and our staff went on retreat. We looked at the survey, and we were really pumped about the things that you said were going well. We said, that's awesome. We're going to keep doing that. And then it's also interesting to read uh, the comments where we need to grow, where we need to improve. The Constructive criticism is not always easy to receive, but it's important because how can you improve if you don't know where you need to improve? So thank you for being honest. So our staff worked in that retreat to develop a plan where we can address some of those areas in this next season of ministry and continue to be the best church that God has called us to be. When you read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, you will notice that Christ commends each church for things that they are doing well. Out of the seven churches, five churches have something to be commended for. And, and Christ says, you're doing this, you're being this, good job, keep doing that. And then there's also reprimand. At least five churches get something to be reprimanded for with the word, I have this against you. Ouch. Um, and then he tells them what they're doing wrong or what's wrong among them. And, and, uh, and, but, you know, here's the thing about grace. In, in those letters, Jesus says, if you repent, there's a promise. If you change, if you get it right, if you get back on track, then there is a promise. Christ will hold each church accountable for its doctrine, its ministry, its integrity, its faithfulness. So Calvary, as you look towards the return of Christ, and I hope you're looking up. I'm looking up. Jesus is coming back. Remember that you are accountable to him for your doctrine and your ministry. That's a great privilege. It's a great responsibility. Guard your freedom with a great sense of responsibility. Stay the course. Be faithful. Be true to the gospel. Be true to Christ. Be true through the scriptures. As one who has been your lead pastor for 13 years, there are a lot of things that I could commend you for. Too many. I mentioned seven of them a couple of weeks ago, and I could mention a lot more. I want you to know that you are a church that has a very good reputation in McAllen, in the Rio Grande Valley. As I travel throughout Texas and even beyond Texas, people know about Calvary and, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for your love. You're a loving church. You have loved us and my family and you have uh, loved the pastoral staff You love each other, I see how you love each other, how you encourage each other, how you take care of each other in your grow groups. You're a welcoming church, you welcome people. People tell me all the time when they come to Calvary how how they feel loved, how they feel welcome, and I wanna say to you, keep that up because that's what makes us, that's how the world knows that we are Christ's, is because of our love, which leads to another area that I think is great about Calvary, and it's our diversity. We wanna be a church for everybody. And that means that in our church, we love children, and we love young people, and we love married people, and we love single people, and, and we love families, and we love senior adults. Everyone of every age group has a place here. And we are so thankful that we have Anglo people, and we have Hispanics, and we have black people, we have Asian people, we have internationals uh, among us, we have multiple languages that our people speak. Last night there was a farewell party for me, which thank you so much. That was just so awesome. Uh, I felt so loved. But it was so cool when the deacons prayed for me in English and Spanish and Tagalog. And I'm sure there could have been other languages. And I think. Calvary is looking more and more each day like that multitude in revelation from every tribe and every people group and every language that no one could count that are worshiping the lamb. What a privilege and what a blessing that is. Remember that as much as you appreciate your heritage and your background, remember that part of that is to value every other person, every other group, every other age group in our church. And you've always been about mission. You've been about God's mission. That includes supporting, sending missionaries, but it also means living our mission here at home. We get to see people baptized like today almost every Sunday. The reason people are being baptized is because you share your faith, because you're making disciples, because you're living on mission, at work, at school, in your neighborhood. And I would just say, keep doing that. That's what we're about. Don't lose the focus on the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, which leads me to warn you about something. Let me warn you about divisive people, people who who distract you from loving God, from loving people and living the mission, people who lead you down rabbit trails. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 about this. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly then in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. Then in Romans 16, He says, I urge you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Not only does Paul warn about these kind of people, but he says what you should do in Titus chapter three, verse 10. Warn a divisive people, a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Listen, the interim period of a church can be a difficult period. I've observed that in my pastoral life. When, when a lead pastor leaves and a, and, a, and a church is looking for the next lead pastor, that's a, a, that can be a difficult time. And people need to be united. You need to be praying. You need to be together. You need to be focused on the mission that God has given you. And so be careful because it's also the time that people with their agendas will try to take advantage of that time to bring their agendas. Be careful with people like that. Keep focused on the mission. I want to thank you for your giving also to the ministry of Calvary. Many of you faithfully give your tithe proportionately and regularly to support the ministry of this church. We are so thankful for you. We're thankful for the senior adults in our church who do that so consistently and so well. Over the years, we have seen this church change. Many of the wealthy people who financially bless the church have either passed away, moved away, or maybe they've gone to a different church. In the meantime, our church has grown in number. Not by a lot of wealthy people, but by people that represent our community here in McAllen. With that being said, I believe that Calvary has a lot more giving potential. We can no longer rely on a handful of wealthy people to help us reach our budget. But when everyone in our church does their part, when every family gives proportionately and regularly to the ministry of Calvary, I believe that we could double our budget And when everyone does their part in grace giving, the staff and the committees can move from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. Instead of thinking about what we cannot do, they'll dream about what God wants us to do because of your faithfulness. So I encourage you in that area. If you're giving already, thank you. If you're not a giver, I encourage you to pray and make a commitment to support the work of this church. And while I'm on that subject, I want to challenge you as a church and as leaders to make sure that every administrative committee member and every deacon is a regular financial contributor to Calvary's budget. The people that make decisions about our budget, the people that make decisions about our personnel, the people that make decisions about missions and our building and grounds and other spiritual matters should be people that are financially invested in the ministry of Calvary. I believe Jesus was right when he said, for where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. When I came 13 years ago, I told the staff that I did not want to know who gave what. And they have respected that. I didn't want anybody to think that I would treat you differently as a pastor because of what you give or don't give. So I don't know. I don't know what you give. That's between you and the Lord. But I want to encourage you to discover that grace of giving. And I want to finish by saying thank you. Thank you for calling me here 13 years ago. Thank you for letting me be your pastor, for letting me into your lives in happy moments and sad moments, for allowing me to open the scriptures and share them with you, for letting me grow here. You've allowed me to make mistakes, you've been patient with me, and I will have a very special place, you have a very special place in my heart I want to say if I've ever hurt you or offended you with my words or with any in any way I want to ask for your forgiveness because it's never been my intention to hurt or offend you I'll be praying for you in the days ahead and I ask that you do the same for me I've grown in these 13 years I know that I'm not a perfect pastor but I'm a better pastor in part because of you. I love you. Thank you.